0: Welcome to Drawing Inspiration. I am your host, Mike Hendley. Episode 62, Scientific Illustration, Flying Trilobites, and Social Media with Glendon Mello. Welcome back once again. I'm thankful that you have joined me for another episode. I hope you're doing well. I hope you've been creating as we head into fall. I just love this time of year. The last few days have been incredible. So I had a great conversation with Glendon. I tried to bring the size or the length of the interview down a little bit, but Man, speaking to this guy, there were so many things I just had to keep in, so many golden nuggets that I think you're going to find really helpful with your creative game and social media and so forth. So um, so I appreciate if you can stick around to the end of it. There's so much that we spoke about and helpful tips and tricks along the way. So uh, I'm going to try and keep my intro as short as possible here so that we can get right into the interview. So I did a, uh, a couple of quick sketches in pencil. I did a wood duck, which was kind of a lot of fun. It's one of those things, right, where you just start drawing something in a page and uh, you realize, oh, I'm onto something here. And so the wood duck is actually one of the um, of the ducks that uh, frequents our pond in the spring. And I just quickly rendered it in pencil in my little moleskin sketchbook with my trusty 0.3 millimeter mechanical pencil. The next sketch I did was uh, tardigrades. So I actually did this after speaking with uh, Glendon um, he brought up tardigrades. And for some reason, I, I think two or three other places I had come across tardigrades are these microscopic uh, water bears, as people call them. So I decided to sketch some of these uh, based on some uh, images I caught through a microscope a few years ago with my daughter. And I'll include in the show notes a link to the two drawings I spoke about. But I'm also going to include a link to a YouTube video I put together about really quickly kind of a, in an Instagram story kind of way, the tools that we use to kind of show those or or find those target grades. And if you have questions about any of that, you can also reach out to me through uh, social media or by email or through the website if you want more details on how you can do that with your kids. So the other thing I wanted to uh, talk about was the starter packs. I mentioned it, I think, two episodes ago, and I've been slowly building them up. I have more to add and more sections to add, but I now have four sections on the website. So the intent with this is, let's say that you're interested in digital art or oil painting, and you've not listened to the podcast, or this is the first episode that you've listened to. The starter packs allow you to dig into a series of two, three, four, five episodes over the last two and a half years that would cover that topic. For example, oil painting, pen and ink, uh, graphite and charcoal, and procreate and digital art. Those are the four sections I have now. So if you're hitting this for the first time, or this is your third or fourth episode, and you want to get into the back catalog, this allows you to dive in based on the type of content that you're looking for. And I will be expanding this over time. Each of these sections are curated manually, so I'm just looking through the episodes and adding content. So if you want to get into this podcast and you want to kind of focus on the content, just go to drawinginspiration.fm and there is a menu item there at the top that says starter pack and just click on that and you'll have some of those listed and as I said I will be um, expanding these over time and adding new categories as well. So the other thing that uh, is coming up is Inktober. I've been playing with the idea of doing it but I I wasn't sure I was going to but I know so many people who are and I feel like I should (laughs) so that uh, because I've done it three years in a row. I did it uh, the first two years digitally. And last year I did it with ink on paper as a single image. I still don't know what I'm doing this year, whether it's going to be ink or digital. So I have been toying with that idea. I did, do a, I did host a Clubhouse room over the weekend to talk about Inktober and what people are doing. And uh, I've decided I am going to do it for sure. I'm probably going to mix nature into it as I did with last year's. And I'm doing a little bit more. So I'm going to be holding a weekly room on Clubhouse. About Inktober. The intent would be to do this every Sunday through the month. So you can join into this clubhouse room. You can stay in the audience or come up and chat. And the whole point would be to kind of support each other and what we're working on, uh, talk about our successes. If you're behind, it's okay. You can still come in and talk about what you're going to do next. So if there are upcoming prompts that people don't understand, which happens quite often, or you're looking for ideas, the whole point in this clubhouse room would be to kind of talk about all that. So we'll be doing, I think it's four plus the uh, i think two days before so if you go into clubhouse and you look for drawing inspiration i have my own club and you can just follow that and you'll get notified as i spin up these rooms i was thinking about doing some in twitter spaces i still may do that if you follow me on twitter you may find it that way as well but i'm for sure going to be doing it within clubhouse and the other thing i've done is i've added a channel to my discord for the podcast To uh, provide a space for those who want to share their work, but may not want to do it on Twitter or Instagram, or may want to do it in addition to Twitter and Instagram. So, this will be an opportunity once again for us as a small group to kind of connect with one another. So, you can find a link to my Discord in Twitter or Instagram. I link to a links page on my website, and you can find a link to my Discord, and it's uh, free to join. So, uh, that'll be something that allows us to connect beyond uh, the podcast itself and maybe provide a little bit of community around doing Inktober. So uh, the last thing I just wanted to mention, I'm opening up for commissions. I haven't done this for a while now, but I am opening up for commissions until they get filled up. So if you or someone you know is interested in having some work done, so you can reach out through the websites, drawinginspiration.fm or mikehenley.com, or you can reach out through social media. I'm everywhere, so uh, however you want to reach me, that would be be cool. I just want to remind you as well, That Glendon and I cover a lot of material through this episode, and he talks about a lot of artists and books and sites and so on and so forth. I have amazing show notes on this episode, so I would encourage you that if your podcast player doesn't support show notes, go to the website and make sure to review uh, all the links that I've provided to all these wonderful artists and the various books and resources that uh, Glendon and I spoke about. And you'll just get so much more after the show. They're not going to be going away. So if you're listening to this um, out for a run or you're in your car or whatever the case, just know that those show notes will be there for you uh, when you need them and be able to allow you to uh, to kind of go down that rabbit hole after you listen to the, the audio content. So that's it for updates. Now let's head into the interview. I found my guest this week online by way of a regular social event around science illustration or sci-art. I joined in on a couple of discussions and realized he had a very special understanding of science, illustration, and art. I immediately reached out to ask him to be on the podcast. His skill in rendering the world around us, combined with a deep knowledge of science, is amazing. He is also very skilled at social media and is quite willing to share tips with those interested in upping their game. To talk about his creative journey, it is my pleasure to welcome to the Drawing Inspiration podcast, Glendon Mello. Hi, Glendon. How are you? Hi, Mike. I'm good. How are you? Good. It's great to speak with you and see your face. We've had <laughs> a few conversations and in various social platforms, and it's just so great to be able to chat with you. And um, I'm excited about what we're going to cover, just talking about scientific illustration and your career. So thank you once again for making the time to do this.
1: Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's great to sit in this chair. You know, you've had Meyer and Gurney and, and so many great people. So I'm, I'm honored to be here.
0: Yeah, this will be fun. Thank you. Thank you so much. And there, there are thunderstorms around both of us, so we'll see if we can make it through without, without losing power. I'm
1: hoping it doesn't rain at least until my children are asleep, and then I can go in the house. Awesome.
0: So I wanted to have you on. We're going to talk about a scientific illustration, which I've not covered before in 61 episodes, really. Okay. I talked a little bit with uh, Joe Brown about that around, you know, she's into uh, mushrooms and and kind of the forest dwellers. And uh, I really wanted to kind of target scientific illustration. But I wanted to kind of start, as I always do, understanding where you came from. I mean, we all start uh, to draw and paint as kids, and I'm wondering, is this something you came back to, or did you stick with that as you grew up?
1: Definitely stuck with it. Um, You know, I I can remember one of my earliest memories was, uh, you know, after uh, getting the uh, Return of the Jedi concept art book as a kid, which wasn't even called concept art back then. It was like just the art book. And I remember trying to come up with my own aliens, and uh, I glued them to cardboard and cut them out and try to use them with the rest of my toys. So you know, it was definitely something that I, I just did all through. There was a period of time in high school where I, I definitely thought I was going to be a writer. And then I sort of, at the last minute when I went to university, uh, decided to do a fine arts degree in visual art and painting. So, yeah, so it's always been there. It's always been there.
0: That's awesome. Were, were your parents, um, what What did they think of, of that in you being interested in arts? Um,
1: I grew up with my mom primarily, and uh, I, I think it's um, a very you know I, I had a lot of latitude to to choose what i wanted to do not a lot of people in my family have gone on to post secondary education so i think once i was making a decision it was sort of like okay we ho- you know we trust you know what you're doing um <laughs> so when i really had no idea what i was getting into but uh yeah I, I think um art definitely runs in my family on you know on on both sides paternal grandmother i've never met but we still have some of her paintings on the wall and uh also a, uh, my aunt on my mother's side actually did the same degree at the same university and had some of the same professors that I did, uh, you know, wow. a, a couple of decades <laughs> earlier. Um, hooray for tenure for those who get it. So, <laughs> so yeah, so it's, it's definitely running the family.
0: That's awesome. So you went into, and, you know, I've had this discussion with quite a few artists about, you know, should you get a degree or should you not or, you know, the advantages and disadvantages of that. But you went and got a formal arts degree?
1: That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, circuitous path to it in some ways uh i went straight <laughs> out of out of uh high school to uh, york university here in toronto excellent fine arts program you know i did not have uh in my in my four years i did not have one bad class on art history every class was just um it almost felt like revelations you know like a, of wow i had no idea this was a, a period in time or that's what these symbols meant in paintings uh, the, the visual vocabulary uh was really uh expansive that you would gain studio courses. I was taking an honors degree, which means that you could take two studio courses a year and, uh, it's quite an intensive workload. And those were, you know, I, I think almost all of them were excellent. There was a couple that I was kind of like, what is this? You know, but, uh, I York is infamous for having strikes. And during one of their massive strikes, one of our classes, 75% of the grade was tied up in a final project. And, uh, I, had to drop the class and didn't manage to go back and complete my degree for over a decade, missing one third year studio class. <laughs> and uh, um, then I went back and it was right after they'd had yet another strike. And when I, I remember distinctly when I called the, uh, the fine arts office, they said, You know, I, I said, you, you know, do I have to take any makeup courses? It's been so long. Like, is there anything I have to do extra? Or, and they said, N- uh, Not for fine arts, because, you know, it's not something like computer programming or something that, where it moves along quite. At a, at a quick pace like that. So mm-hmm. uh, they were like, you really want to come back to York? <laughs> like on the phone, uh, which was sort of like, you want to finish it here? You know, so it was kind of funny. But, uh, but going back after working for so long, you know, it, it completely changes your perspective of what you want out of the classes. And it was, I think that one year that I went back and, and took a couple of studio courses just to finish my degree was actually some of the, the most rewarding Schooling that I I had done. I, I wish I could go back and do more school.
0: So that's interesting. I've always thought about that because I, I I've taken no art training except a workshop I did a three day workshop one weekend, and I loved it so much. I just wanted to take courses every single day mm-hmm. after that. And it's it's amazing how we. The passion stays the same, but our approach to it changes and we I think as as we get older we tend to look at it differently and maybe sometimes lighter, maybe sometimes you know, which with more mature eyes. But um I I'm just encouraged to hear so many people later in life getting into art mm-hmm. and with this enthusiasm and passion about it. And it's 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 interesting, you're commenting about going back to, to university, <laughs> that it's almost like you did that yourself within this little uh, opportunity where you had that time span that you were able to come back to yeah. it, differently, refreshed, mature eyes, maybe not mature eyes, but lived experience <laughs> saying, there, Mike? right? So <laughs> that's right. Can you see me? <laughs> yeah, I mean,
1: I, that. yeah, that was the thing. Like, I mean, I, I basically, um, I couldn't afford to go back for a long time, right after... Uh, right after that big strike, when it, the year that I should have graduated, my parents, they'd been split for years. They sold the house. I was sort of living on my own and really struggling for a long time. And yeah, and for a long time, I couldn't afford to go back. So I got a job, was working, you know, and, and uh, still making art. I started blogging in that time. And I've always been an early riser. So I would get up at like 5.30 in the morning and start either writing or drawing. Um, it wasn't until, until my wife, you know, we'd met in that time. And and, uh, she had finished a couple of degrees and, you know, she was like, you really just got to go back and finish that. Thing. <laughs> you know, you're one class away. Like, just let's get it done. You know? And, uh, she really pushed me to, to go back and just finish it off. And I'm really glad I did. It was a, it was a good experience. So, would
0: you recommend others do that? Uh, maybe not taking the, a, a like, 10 year gap, the gap in between years
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> with one dangling class. No, I don't. Um, would I recommend other people go to university for, for fine art? Um, you know, I, I was listening to, to your last, your last guest. I'm I'm sorry. I can't remember her last name. Gail was it? Um, yes. Yeah. And, and, uh, I agree with her that I don't think anybody should, uh, come out of these things saddled with as much debt as I had. Thankfully it's all paid off for me now, but uh, it was a long, slow road. And, uh, I, I do think, uh, the education itself though, I do think it does transform how you look at the world. I do think that, that type of uh, scholarly rigor that you can throw yourself into can really push you to different places. So I, I think there's something, I often, I often in, in different writing that I've done, I've often talked about the importance of having a visual vocabulary. And I think that's something that um, is lacking even in news media right now. Not to jump too far afield, but I, I think,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, I, I did some writing for Scientific American for five and a half years about the intersection of art and science. And one of the things I would talk about there was, you know, sometimes you would get a magazine cover that in my opinion, I don't know the inside baseball on all of it. I would look at this, the science magazine cover and say to myself, like, this is an editor who has no arts training who picked this out. And there was a sort of infamous case where um, one magazine had written a story about transgendered prostitutes in Uh, It was in another country, Uh, apologies, I think it was Brazil, if I'm not mistaken, but at any rate, and they had put on the cover a very sexualized picture of two women, and I guess for anonymity, had cropped their heads out of the photo. And, you know, I ended up sort of staying up, uh, there was a lot of discourse about it in the science communication community, and I ended up staying up late one night writing a long Twitter thread about how in the history of fine art. There's actually a history of uh, nudes with, uh, of women with the heads, you know, cut off or missing or out of the composition. Um, and it's not a good thing. It's a, you know, it's a very uh, male gazey thing. Um, Duchamp had one where it's, it's horrific really. He, he picked his favorite body parts from his wife and his mistress and made a sort of amalgam picture and then didn't bother to include anybody's face. Um, so I was sort of, you know, I think when I think about my uh, fine arts education, I think of how that comes to bear on, on things like news media or, or modern art practice. And I think there's, there's a history there that we shouldn't forget because it also has a trajectory that carries into the future that we need to think about. The short answer is if you can go to school for fine art, um, I think you, you'll find it, you know, it's, I think anybody could find it really illuminating and, and valuable.
0: And I think... Uh, d- just because you had mentioned an artist, I wanted to highlight that you probably will mention more, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I do really good show notes, so if you're listening to this and you're driving in your car or you're, you're on the subway, check out the show notes on the website or in your podcast player. I will include links to everything that Glendon mentions, uh, whether it be websites, artists, or otherwise. So you got a fine arts degree eventually. Uh, what was your first gig, um, and, and how did that evolve to the next thing?
1: I guess that's, that's, that's kind of the, the, the weird path. I mean, it, it, um, like a lot of people, I was working in a cafe for a long time, you know, in, in university. I think in there, I got a job working for uh, Dessert, which is a chain of art supply stores here in Canada. They used to be called Loomis and Tolls. And I was a manager with that company for uh, just about 10 years and worked at a few locations around Toronto. At that time, I remember distinctly one of my employees uh decided to start an art blog for himself. And he wanted to just go around Toronto and go to art shows and review what he saw. He was not a trained art critic. He was not somebody anyone was hiring, but he decided he was gonna do it and he got a lot of hate for it because, you know, if he was critical of a show, people would be like, Who the hell are you to talk about our show that way? Um but he was he was blogging. It was sort of a heyday of blogging back then and and uh so I was looking at what he was doing and I was sort of thinking about it one day and I was like, well, I have all these paintings, some from university and some just for myself. And I I never really stopped uh producing any. And I was like, well, I need to start doing something with them. So I I set up my first uh blog, the Flying Trilobite uh blog. And uh back then I had it on Blogger and yeah, I would get up early, I would, I would write, I would draw, um, Eventually, with the art store job, you know, and and following all these different science blogs, I wasn't following artists very much. This is sort of an accident that I fell into, but I I I was following a lot of scientists um, and their blogs. And back then, you would have a little blog roll off to the side, and mm-hmm. all your links of your favorite blogs. And you know, we used that before like Facebook was really big. Yeah. Then I started uh, commenting on other people's blogs, just genuine comments. And one of them, uh, Shelley Batts is a, a psychologist uh, or a psychology major. She uh, tried, you know, did what everybody did and back then and, and looked at who's this person commenting, let's check out their site, and then asked if I would design a blog banner for her. Um, and that led to me doing a, a number of blog banners for a few people. And uh, from there, there used to be these science online conferences in North Carolina that were all about science communication. And one year I just, you know, I was looking at all these science bloggers that I was reading all the time and, they're all going, and it sounded fantastic. So I contacted the organizers and said, can I go? And they emailed back and said, oh yes, we'd love to have you, but we need you to do a demo on Wacom tablets, and uh, we need you to give a talk on the intersection of art and science, and we'll pay for your flight and your hotel. And, you know. and I was like, but you've never heard me speak. And they said, no, but we've read your blog. We assume it's the same. That's fine. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, it was, so I went to those for five years in a row, and uh, I got to meet Tons of amazing uh, science writers. I could list so many right now. Um, I mean, Carl Zimmer, Ed Young, Emily Willingham, uh, Riley Black, you know, so many. There's so many more I'm going to forget, and I'm going to kick myself later. And, uh, yeah, they, you know, and and then I also managed to meet David Orr, who writes uh, the blog Love in the Time of the Chasmosaurs. We did a talk together along with the anthropologist John Hawks, who's also quite an accomplished artist. And... uh, you know, in different years, I would sort of team up with different people, and we we give talks together. And that led <laughs> to me working for a company called InVivo, uh, which is a Toronto-based company that makes medical animation apps, AR, VR, and uh, games for the pharmaceutical industry. Um, these days, specifically for medical affairs, typically. And I worked there for a number of years. Downsizing and layoffs happen. I worked at a number of other jobs as a social media kind of guy. Um, I gave a lot of talks about how to use social media as an illustrator, including to the Association of Medical Illustrators uh, annual meeting at uh, the Mayo Clinic. Yeah, eventually, just before the pandemic, I ended up getting rehired at Info, um, and I'm working there again now. <laughs> just through, I was I was actually being interviewed by a competitor and and asked them for a reference, and then they sort of called and said, "Hey, what are you doing? You know, like what's going on? <laughs> Should we talk?" So. Yeah, so that that's kind of, I guess if you can sort of describe how I've done everything, it, it, the, the artwork led to uh, me learning how to not only promote myself, but promote other artists. Um, I kind of glossed over the, the writing for Scientific American in there, which was happening around the same time as those conferences. And as myself and Calliope Manios and Katie McKissick. For five and a half years, we wrote a, a blog called Symbiartic at the intersection of art and science. And it was you know, it, it's it's so funny. We were just, it's still, you can still find most of, well, a lot of our articles at symbiotic.com. It was great because we could just be so positive most of the time. You know, we could look at this amazing person, look at this amazing person, let's interview this one. Uh, occasionally we would dive into criticism and that's when we would call on one of the editors to review the work um, if we were if we were being critical of someone. Um, but because of that, I you know, it was really an exercise in, in sort of community building. So again, like the, the artwork led to uh, lecturing and and giving talks on how to use social media effectively and how to build community effectively, and then those things sort of led to me uh, working in a a marketing job at a company that's very visually inclined uh, in the sciences. That was a long story. I rambled a little there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this is going to be exciting to dive into because you know I enjoy writing myself and finding that balance that that balance in that creative productivity of you know. The writing versus the drawing or the painting—it's a hard balance sometimes, and you end up kicking yourself. It's like I haven't drawn anything in four days or two weeks or whatever, right? Is a struggle. But we'll 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 talk about that, and I think we'll talk about social media as well. I wanted to go back because you know you've got this blog, uh, the the flying trilobite, which is your blog, and. I was think I was looking back at your first story, your first blog entry from I think two thousand seven. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Were you ta- baby
1: blogger?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Where you talk about um, so maybe I, I think it would just be kind of fun to maybe talk about what a trilobite is and that that one you did for your um, instructor and his comment about it that kind of fueled your 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 oh, direction my, forward. The comment right. about it,
1: yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I don't want one of those in my, yeah, yeah. that's right. That's right. The soup comment. Yeah. So a trilobite, it's a, it's an entire, um, uh, you know, very large group of or groups of, um, extinct aquatic animals. Uh, they're arthropods. So they're very distantly related to, uh, you know, insects and, and, uh, lobsters and those little potato bugs you find in the garden. Um, they could roll up like those too. Most of them. So there's 15,000 or probably much more. I read that year, that stat years ago. Um, There's over 15,000 species. Um, They're very common um, fossils. Uh, They died out before the dinosaurs evolved. So you're talking about something that's very, very old, which is part of what's always intrigued me about them. Um, There's a massive variety of them, like 15,000 recorded species. Some of them are very spiny. Uh, Some of them have little knobs on them. Um, There's one that's known as the strawberry headed trilobite. Uh, just because of it it almost looks like a seed stuck to its head. Um, some of them have eyes on stalks. They're fascinating. They have the first eyes that we can find in the fossil record um, that were actually uh, calcium uh, crystals, compound eyes. So they're fascinating to draw. They tick a lot of boxes for me to do with prehistory and deep time, uh, something very ancient. And uh, when I was in university... Um, I decided to start doing, a, I did a drawing that was sort of a, a figure in the middle representing extinction. I think this might be the, the one you're talking yes. about. Yep. And uh, I did a bunch of extinct animals kind of swirling around it, almost as if they were coming out of its mouth. One of those drawings I look back on and I'm kind of happy with, but I would probably do things so, much so differently now. Um, and uh, that was one of the first times I really sat down and tried to draw trilobites. Yeah, when my professor came around, he, he looked at them and said, ooh, I don't want any of those in my soup. And then he moved on. That was kind of a the comment. There is a story, though, that about how it, like I sort of got galvanized to wanting to do art back then. And so I, I had a show with a friend of mine, a good friend of mine. Our styles aesthetically complemented each other. The subject matter is wildly different. And uh, uh, her name's Carla Pachequin. So we had this art show, and I had a painting about, uh, I call it Symbiosis. And one of the features in the painting is a very large purple tardigrade. And tardigrades are... Microscopic organisms alive now. Um, they're very hardy. You can dry them and then drop water on them and they start swimming again. They've even done experiments where they've taken them up in space and introduced them to vacuum. And they, you know, like drop some water on them. They start swimming again, you know.
0: They had them in Star Trek Discovery.
1: Did they? Okay. Yes. I don't Star Trek, but yeah, they, they, um, yeah, they're often known as water bears. They're, they're cute for a microorganism. At any rate, I had a big painting of one of those. And this is, you know, again, earlier days of, of social media so they, they maybe weren't as meme worthy as they are now or something. But, um, you know, my friends came to the art show and, and it was up on the university campus and people were talking about it. People were asking me about the paintings. And this one, uh, woman who worked at the cafe with me, who was, uh, I believe she was a zoology major and she worked part-time at the veterinary clinic as well. She came over to me and said, okay, if, if this means nothing to you, don't worry about it. But is that a tardigrade in that picture? And I was like, yes, yes, it is. You know, and she's like, I can recognize it because of the feet, you know, and and she was so excited that the artwork, um, she got this other layer to the artwork that, you know, my, my very educated artsy friends weren't catching because they weren't as interested in these weird Mm -hmm. scientific things, um, the way that I was. And I realized like there was this part of me that wanted to create this artwork, not to be elitist, but to create visual art that had metaphor and allegory for scientists to look at and try to puzzle out. And, uh, so that really became a driving force for me for a number of years was, and still often is, is how do I create something that people who, you know, not everybody has the same level of scientific education, even amongst scientists, of course. Um, uh, I'm not painting usually for astronomers, you know, paleontologists will get most of it, but, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So, so that sort of became a driving force in how I try to approach it is how can I blend a bit of pre- prehistory or, or microbiology with uh, with mythology and, uh, and metaphor and, and try to, try to, you know, make something that's a little bit of a puzzle box for a scientist to look at and go, Ooh, ooh I, you know, let, let me talk about that. Let's look at that, you know? So, um, for everybody else, I hope they're visually interesting and maybe they'll prompt them to ask questions as well.
0: Yeah. I saw the, uh, I was flipping through your portfolio. I saw the water bear and it's like, Oh, that is <laughs> awesome. Cause my, my daughter and I, uh, resurrected some and uh oh really yeah so we just took some lichen off a tree and put it in with water and i think a day later and uh, we started pulling some of the water under a microscope and we sent we saw them waking up we, we spotted two that's amazing and we have some video of them uh, kind of waking up it's just amazingly cool so uh yeah I was i was really impressed to see that i was like i know what that is
1: <laughs> yeah and th- and that's kind of the feeling that i'm looking for with some of those and i i think that's a common feeling in art yeah. these days with with social media and online as well, I mean you get that with fandoms, right? you know if i mean i I think about you know Disney plus just unveiled the uh, trailer for Hawkeye, which I'm really excited about, and uh a lot of this this Disney plus show is going to be based on a particular run of the comics, and you know immediately there's articles dissecting this visual looks just like this part of the comic and and this is a reference to that, mm-hmm. and so you know I, I think that's that's an impetus that a lot of people look for. And I, I think whether or not it's always successful, that's something I'm trying to do with with some of my paintings.
0: You know, obviously, I'm going to include a link to your site and a bunch of other information. But I would recommend people just look through your portfolio because it is just Thank uh, you. It's wonderful to flip through, and uh, I love the work. I love the trilobites <laughs> with wings. I mean, <laughs> that's that's uh, <laughs>
1: that's, uh, that's my, my Twitter handle, right? Flying trilobite. Um, that's a joke in and of itself, too. Actually, like it's because there's so many trilobites, and and people have gotten really proficient as as hobbyists. And amateur scientists to uh, clean them and, and clean the fossils and prepare them themselves. You know, it's quite an endeavor. Like you have to have really expensive, you know, Dremel tool and, and delicate equipment to do a good job. There's some trilobites are are in sort of a pose where they, uh, um, again, you have to think of it as a little oblong, almost like potato bug or sow bug or roly poly. You know, some of them are sort of uh, bent a little in the middle, and uh, sometimes when they're being prepared, people will carve underneath them and sort of make them up on a pedestal. And those are known as flying trilobites. So it's, oh, okay. it's a bit of a... So then when I paint them, I stick bat wings and other things on them. And, or my, my favorite one the last couple of years is <laughs> the awesome. trilobite trebuchet. And it's a flying trilobite where you lob it at people. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, so it's, a bit, it's a bit of a nod to a, an obscure hobbyist uh, uh, form of preparing a fossil. That's fun.
0: Do you... Um, like if you sit down and sketch, are you drawing animals? Uh... Am I drawing animals? Oh, like, like, what do you draw if you just, like, oh, I just need to draw something? Like, is there a subject matter? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You get that itch.
1: Uh, often it's a trilobite, and often I don't bother necessarily looking at reference or worrying about it. Um, sometimes I do. I mean, I have books of them. But sometimes I'll just pick a, a species and, okay, I'll draw that one. I like to draw people. I like to draw hands. I'm still always working on hands. I've been critiqued heavily on my hands um, by friends before, which is fair so I do like to, to try to work on that. Um, I have some anatomy books. Sometimes I'll just sit down and sketch that. Sometimes I'll try to turn it into more of a picture, but it's always kind of, kind of forced. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> right. but I, I, do like to draw animals sometimes. Uh, yeah, I, honestly, one of the things I like to draw the most are, uh, scraggly old dead trees and I love them. And, uh, it, it's sort of a, that's the doodle if I'm doodling while I'm on a call or something because it's usually a bunch of branches.
0: I, I'm with you on that the textures and just uh yeah just feeling the growth over so yeah. many years and uh yeah just I uh, I yeah, yeah. 100% I yeah maybe
1: it's a maybe one. it's a southern Ontario thing where so much of the year we have these uh dead looking trees everywhere <laughs> you <know>? so
0: yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> we've got a few weeks yeah. of leaves and that's it so let's, you talked about uh, drawing, um, so let's dip into the technical bit and just understanding, you know, uh, because I saw you commenting, and and this hit my soul like uh, like seeing the water bear, and that is your mention of a 0.3 millimeter mechanical pencil. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I wanted to ask you, like, what do you normally work with? And uh, I'm sure you have very distinct thoughts. I remember we, we were in, a, I think, a Twitter spaces and we were talking about paper and you were telling me the history of, I don't know if it was arches or something else. And it was like,
1: Fabriano. 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 And I was like, yeah. Lennon,
0: you got to come on the podcast and just talk. <laughs> <laughs> but if you can just talk maybe about, um, you know, what tools do you use now? And are you drawing? Are you painting? And what paper? Do you use a sketchbook? That kind of stuff. Just so if someone's listening and they're getting into this, that they understand kind of what you're using and maybe they could either pursue that or feel justified in what they're
1: doing. That's, yeah, that, that's a great idea. Like, it's, it's always good to hear what people are using, for sure. Am I allowed to criticize brands I don't like?
0: <laughs> Absolutely. This is not a sponsored episode. You can talk about anything.
1: Yes. I, so, as you said, I, I do love the the 0.3 millimeter mechanical pencils. Uh, they're the go to for delicate cross hatching and, and just, uh, you know, I'll, I'll sometimes pull out a 0.5 just to um, strengthen some lines around the edges and things. And can I ask you what lead you're using? Um, I usually just go with HB because for 0.3 millimeter, it's hard to find anything else. So, I usually just stick with HB. And I don't like to go too soft and dark. Um, for anybody who's not aware, the, uh, the further you go into the Bs, um, think of it as black or bold. Those are going to be softer and darker. The further you go into the Hs, I always think of it as they're hard. They're going to be hard and lighter lines. Um, so HB kind of sits in the middle. But yeah, so like a 9H will be really, really light, and a 9B is going to be really, really dark and almost charcoal-like. But uh, this is the art store days training, by the way. This is ten years of managing an art supply store and training countless <laughs> people on how to uh, talk about art supplies. So, yeah, mechanical pencil is a must. I love a good moleskin sketchbook. I know it's gone through different owners over the years. The paper quality—I just love uh, how smooth it is. Uh, I do have a couple of other sketchbooks people have gifted to me that are a little coarser. That sometimes I'll play in there, especially if I know I'm going to. Uh, uh, do some shading with the side of a pencil, um, like a traditional uh, pencil. And uh, just uh, softer papers like that uh, or more textured papers are great for for sort of getting out your tortillon, you know, your little paper smudger, and, uh, and, and, yes. and, and uh, playing with that. I also like to work with oils. Typically when I work with oils on canvas or oils on slate, I have a lot of slate, what I will do... I guess that's two different things. So if I'm painting on stone, I like to use a clear um, acrylic-based gesso and put that on as a primer because otherwise what happens is the slate will just suck up all the oil very well and you're left with kind of a dusty um, uh, pigment on the on the surface. Um, so it's really important to prime those. If I'm painting on canvas, I like it to be dark. I like my figures to emerge from darkness. So I will usually use just uh, cheap black acrylic or I'll, every once in a while I'll buy, if it's for a specific client, I'll I'll buy black gesso and use that. I don't have a particularly favorite brand of oil paints. I just mostly hunt for different pigments that I like. So, I mean, I have a lot of Winsor Newton, Grumbacher, some Gamblin. Again, I'm mostly looking for certain pigments. Um, Naples yellow is by far my favorite color, but it's also got soluble lead in it, so you can't don't make a mess all over your hands. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I also paint digitally a lot. So usually, what I do digitally is I will draw in pencil on paper. Uh, these days, I just take a photo instead of scanning. And I saw this technique years ago in in, in um, Imagine Effects magazine. And all you do is is you put your pencils on a multiply layer, like you set the layer to blend uh, at the setting called multiply. And then you can paint underneath it, mm-hmm. and the pencil will basically float on top. And then, of course, you can add another layer and paint on top of the pencil if you want to get some nice highlights or something like that up there. And for digital painting, uh, for years, I've used ArtRage, Enough so that when I was blogging about it, they started giving me promotional codes for different versions of it as they came out. They don't do that anymore, Nice, but that's cool because I don't talk about it as much. I did download their new, they have a new ArtRage Vite-, Vite app that they've added a few new features, so I've been testing that a little
0: bit. So are you doing this on an iPad or are you doing this on a Cintiq?
1: Now I'm doing it on an okay. iPad. I was doing it on my PC before with um, with a Wacom Intuos tablet. Okay. Now I'm using a, a 2017 iPad Pro and first-gen Apple Pencil. And uh, okay, and I started playing with Procreate too. I mean, Procreate and Art Rage are similar in a bunch of ways, and they both have things I like about them compared to each other, for sure. So, so those are my main tools: mechanical pencils, moleskin sketchbooks, oil paints, sometimes on rock, and uh, and then usually Art Rage or Procreate.
0: Yeah, uh, you know what? Uh, and I don't want to want to spend too too much time on it, but when you were talking about the Fabriano mm-hmm. uh, paper and just the history of moleskin, like. These companies yeah, are old. Yeah. Like the production of paper is really an old industry. Like how
1: old is like Fabriano's? The, I believe it's the 1200s. I'm going to look it up while we're talking. Yeah, and, and Fabriano is really interesting. I mean, for for years when we were at the art store, you couldn't get it because at the time they were uh, creating all the paper for the euro um, for the launch of the euro, and uh, so their production was diverted to doing that. So it's you know you're talking about it's not only an old paper company like it's not only something artists have used for a long time you're talking about something that i don't know if revered is quite the right word but it's it's very well respected um enough so that it could help make money right there's actually another interesting story about uh uh, golden acrylic paints there's a brand called golden they make some interesting ones called interference colors where they kind of act a bit like a butterfly's wing in terms of um when light hits them, certain wavelengths will bounce off. So if you tilt it one way, it looks blue. You tilt it another way, it looks bright green. Uh, PBO paints also have some versions of that as well. Golden actually, I remember years ago when I was working at the art store, they uh, did like a, a workshop for us and told us that they had another one that could not only do two colors, it could do lots of colors. Um, it was basically like almost a rainbow, you know. And they were they had it ready to go to market. They had a huge marketing campaign behind it. And then the American Mint basically said to them, we're seizing all of this. Like, this, we need this for, uh, to help stop counterfeiting on money. And, and they basically took the pigment wow. and, and production it over. And said, no, you can't. You can't sell it. Um, so at least that was the story they told us. But Fabriano, here, let me see here. Go into their history for a second. I'm just going to take a quick look. But I believe it's the 1200s. Yep, 13th century. Yeah. It's a, wow. a little town started it
0: off that's incredible i mean you know with all this technology it's just uh I, I, it just warms the soul to know that this company's been around for yep. hundreds of years and it's not going away anytime soon i mean even though we're going to be using our ipads th- there's still a joy I, like mm-hmm. i bounce back and forth like I, and it's not day to day it's more like week to week or every couple of weeks or something where you spend time on the ipad and it's yes. like i miss the scratches. <laughs> <saw the> paper. <laughs> i gotta go back for
1: me a lot of a lot of my move to digital was uh simply to do with having kids it wasn't safe for me to leave my oil paints and a wet painting out on an easel um, when you have toddlers or little kids running around you know uh, my kids are old enough now that it's probably fine but um but a lot of the shift to digital for me was was partly about space not having enough room in the apartment to really set up a studio space that i can let sit there and uh Right. And then also, you know, having the little ones around. So, yeah, I mean, now that my kids are older, like I'm definitely thinking about, I've still got my supplies and didn't get rid of them. So, uh, you know, it's uh, definitely, <laughs> definitely think about pulling those out again.
0: Did you find, so I started into art with my, um, so my daughter's turning 19 in a couple of weeks. I started into art when she was about two or three. I drew a T-Rex or mm-hmm. sorry, a Triceratops for her. And I I drew it just because I I was the stay at home dad, and um, so my wife was was off working, and I was entertaining the child as you do as a yes. parent. And I was like, let's draw stuff, and um, I drew it, and I was like, that's not bad, <laughs> <laughs> and that's
1: <Yeah. laughs> and that's what started my journey. Yeah, I, I have similar feelings. I mean, I I always drew, but yeah, I mean, I can remember it was a we you know I don't know grade five or six or something. We did a class on perspective and. I decided I wasn't going to just draw a building. I was going to. One of my favorite books was Castles with artwork by Alan Lee, who, you know, also eventually went on to help with Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I I was just like, well, I'm going to try my best to make this look like an Alan Lee castle and uh, drawing tiny little vines over everything and delicate shading on each rock and brick in the castle. And uh, that was kind of when I started taking it a bit more seriously and going, "Eh, maybe I know what I'm doing.
0: Did you find that once you had kids that your subject matter changed at all?
1: Yes. Before kids, a lot of my paintings had to do with both. I often depicted seeds, um, acorns a lot in particular, and objects of death like a skull. Or I was trying to think about Vanitas painting in in the Renaissance and, and Baroque period, painting subject matter that was usually still lifes that represented Uh, different symbols and they often would have a symbol of death in them somewhere just to remind you of mortality. Uh, Don't forget guys. So yeah, a lot of my paintings usually had, had sort of life and death cycles in them. And I think after having kids, I didn't want to dwell on that as much. So I think some of my paintings became a little more playful, not so I could share them with the kids necessarily. Like it's not that they, you know, they don't look at my flying trilobite paintings and go awesome, or let's do more of those. Like, but, uh, uh, <laughs> but I think it, it definitely changed how I, you know, I wasn't maybe so fixated on those things.
0: Interesting. So let's dive a little bit into scientific illustration. And can you, from your perspective, define what scientific illustration is?
1: I think scientific illustration is any illustration done educational and explanatory purposes in the sciences. Uh, because the sciences are often uncovering things we don't experience in our day-to-day and trying to educate on new theories, there's sort of always a need for uh, visual depiction that will resonate with people to help them understand it. And that goes for whether or not you're explaining something in physics, or if you're um, trying to describe what a new dinosaur species might have looked like in life. Um, or one of my favorite examples is to do with medical illustration. The reason we don't just take photos of a surgery to explain the inside of the body is we need to edit things out. Um, all the viscera and blood and fluids during a surgery are not going to be helpful for explaining where exactly all the organs are sitting so medical illustrators as detailed and incredible and accurate as they uh, need to be and it 's a profession that that holds itself to a very high standard. you know it, a lot of what they 're doing is actually editing information away uh, so that you can understand very clearly what you need to understand so I think scientific illustration is different from or at least a subset of sci art the way i see it at least
0: okay so i know a lot of people that are doing possibly i mean there's a lot of people doing nature journaling mm-hmm. and i'll be talking about that in a future episode um i talked about it in the past as well and i've done some nature journaling where i'm drawing monarchs and and uh, moths and mushrooms and all that kind of stuff as well would you all would you consider that to be scientific illustration
1: yeah i think i think generally yes yeah i mean it's um, part of scientific illustration is often uh, the purpose it's put toward right so if you um if you slap a frame on it and sell it in a gallery it's is it a scientific illustration well, kind of still but um you know in a textbook it's to, you know very definitely so um because it's probably accompanying some text that's going to go into more detail right and that's that's one of the fuzzy things about about artwork is a lot of people say one of my pet peeves, I think it was the second article I ever wrote for for scientific american is is trying to get people not to want to elevate things to the level of quote-unquote art because what they usually mean when they say that is they oh that's that's not just an illustration that's art you know what they're actually saying is they want people to revere it the way people revere fine art and to me fine art and not just to me but i think this is just true fine art is one discipline illustration is another discipline scientific illustration is another discipline so they all again have their own histories and they all have their own trajectories of where they're going in the future and i think We shouldn't confuse them for one another. Fine art's not on a pedestal above the rest of them. It's a different discipline, and uh, I think so. I think to answer your question, I think you know if somebody does a very um, realistically accurate drawing of a dragonfly or a mushroom or what what have you, I think yes, it it, it is a scientific illustration. It may not be used. It may be used in a more fine artsy purpose. Uh, It may be used in a kids book illustration. So. And that's fine. Those are all good uses. There's no, you know, I'm not looking down my nose at one of those versus the other or anything like that.
0: So. Right. So do you think there always be a place for illustration versus the opportunities now with photography and maybe more so, um, you know, things you can do from a CG perspective and, and applications like Blender and so forth? Do you think there's there's always going to be an opportunity for illustration? And if we, with uh, under illustration that we're grouping, you know, sure. the, the analog and the digital together. Like I don't think we need to separate them. But do you think there's always an opportunity for illustration?
1: Yes, and I think I think the reason why is because uh, when art is moving somebody, you kind of can't deny that. So I think if as good as CG gets, and there's some absolutely gorgeous um, CG medical animation, and I think to sit down and with your pencil and in 2D or, or a, a paint set or do a little watercolor in the open air, I think it, it still resonates with people in a way that sometimes uh, a more sterile scientific illustration will not. Some scientific illustration absolutely hits that level, sure. I often wish that the uh, science communication industry community would learn enough about visual vocabulary to step away from the very literal uh, you know, when you go and you look at magazines in a magazine rack of uh, front covers, mm-hmm. um, you know, Discover, Scientific American, uh, Nature. Often, what they depict, like let's say, you know, it's a, an artist depiction of a of a new probe we have around another planet in the solar system. They've done a, a very careful three D render. They've maybe used some photo composites to uh, create the planet in the background. It might look kind of pretty. You know, I, I don't want to knock the artists that are doing that because I think those are important to have. Uh, because they are illustrative of, hey, this is what it would look like if you had this vantage point way out in space. But to me, sometimes they're a little bit too sterile, and I'd almost like to see some brushwork in there. I'd like to see something a little more that captures the emotion. A lot of people don't know this, but the illustrator Michael Whalen, um, who has done book covers for since time immemorial, he did most of the Dragon Riders of Pern novel covers and, and countless others. He has quite a storied career. Michael Whalen, uh, at one point, was actually asked by NASA to go up in a shuttle. And the reason why was because even though they could take these incredible high-risk photos of the Earth from space, they felt none of them were capturing the emotions the astronauts were feeling. And while he paints in a very realistic manner, he also just seems to, I don't know how, how to say it, but he, he seems to have a way of understanding light and color in a way that uh, does fill you with emotion. So he didn't end up going um, I, believe, I believe the reason was uh, you know, he had, he had a family and kids and there was enough nervousness about it that uh, he decided it wasn't a risk he was going to take. I could be wrong on that, but I, <laughs> I believe that's the story, if I recall. <laughs> um, and, and I think that's, that's the reason why I think there'll still be a need for, for traditional, whether it's, again, analog or digital, uh, illustration. So I think when you do see that painting, you do see that drawing that really moves you. If you're a scientist that knows that really unusual species and you get excited about the drawing and, and how the person interpreted it, I don't. I think you kind of can't deny the power that has. And I don't think that's going to go away just because we have other tools.
0: Nice. It brings me to another question now in that, you know, there's, there's somebody listening to this podcast who's doing some illustration now. Maybe they've done some botanicals, maybe they've done some insects or a dog. They've done some of this illustration work. What can people do to get further into this? Like you're coming from a fine arts degree and then you're able to backfill with this scientific knowledge that mm-hmm. you've gained over the years. Are there any strategies you would recommend to people who um, are coming to this with some degree of artistic intelligence, artistic expertise, experience, and want to take this further. How do you do that without a science degree? Is it just um, researching the subject you're in and making sure it's accurate? Like do you have any tips around becoming a better illustrator with regard to scientific content or science content?
1: Um, I guess the, the tip I would have, first of all, is just to keep observing. Often when I sit and draw a trilobite, I don't usually try to depict what they look like in life. Even if I have them in the composition looking like they're moving, I tend to focus on them as fossils. I just like that. But, but, uh, but I think it's also because I, I like to get the fossil right, even if I'm going to stick wings on it after. And I think observation is really just the most important thing. Go to your local museum and and stand and sketch, uh, you know the skeletons or the fossils there, or the specimens there. Often they have um, like contemporary creatures, uh, taxidermied and, and things. Museums don't mind when you do that. Typically, I mean certainly the Royal Ontario Museum here in Toronto, it's no problem. They just don't want you. To, you know, any time I've ever asked about it, they've always just said as long as you're not obstructing any of the other guests, um, it's fine. So mm-hmm. I think there's something to be said for that if you want to get. Further into it, uh, Mark Witten has written a book about uh, paleo illustrations. Specifically, if you want to be a paleo illustrator, uh, apologies that I, I can't recall the name of the book exactly right this second. And and he's somebody who certainly has spent a lot of time. It's been it, it's been fascinating to watch him and other paleo artists over the last oh, I don't know you know dozen years or so advance. You know, not only with the scientific work they get hired to do. Brian Eng is another one. He, he makes a lot of really cool videos on youtube about it as well and you know watching them advance these things and their art also getting increasingly bold and subtle and playful and uh, the, the paleo art community often has a lot of arguments going on in it which can scare people away there can often be a lot of gatekeeping from some scientists who don't want to see anything that they think might lead people astray, despite the fact that the Jurassic world movies exist and are not that accurate. Um, but uh, so there's a lot of protectiveness. If if you were the hired artist to draw a new specimen, you don't want other people coming in and stepping on it and doing it wrong. You know? um, right. So it can be daunting sometimes, but stick with it. I think
0: that's cool. It's, it's interesting you mentioned the Jurassic movies cause I, I was watching a talk uh, last week, as part of the Lightbox Expo, and they had Crash McCreary showing and talking through the illustrations he did as part of the Jurassic series. And uh, while not accurate, I've heard this from many others as well, it was just wonderful to hear him talk about these and the way he approached it and mm-hmm. drawing the babies and what he was you know, he had a group with them and he wanted, you know, the, the eye to be a bit larger and to focus on you and um he, just the way he he had put together some of the scenes, it was just wonderful to hear him speak about his his drawings. And everyone's like, How big are they? What pencil yeah, did yeah, you exactly use?
1: Right. <laughs> and how do I draw just like you, Crash? Yeah. A, yeah, that's exactly. If I just get the right tools. And and those movies, yeah. I mean, I don't I don't mean to dismiss the note right. I mean, the, the thing that's amazing about especially the original Jurassic Park was even though they took some liberties with things like the Dilophosaurus having uh, a neck frill, which it wouldn't have had in life as far as we know, I mean, there's no reason to think it had one, and making it a lot shorter than it normally would have been, you know, because they felt that they didn't want it to compete in size and be confusing with the raptors. At the same time, what those movies did was propel the audience finally away from the slow-moving dumb you know beasts that people in the public generally thought of dinosaurs and it at least dragged people forward that way so the series over time has made a lot of advances in the public's mind about about these animals so you know the the biggest most egregious complaint from scientists these days and and paleoartists is the lack of feathers on all the uh the predators we, we know they had them, you know, so mm-hmm. let's see them Jurassic Park three, put a few on the, uh, they, they put some <laughs> little mohawks on the, on the raptors in that one. But yeah.
0: And I think what people need to need to be mindful about is that all of these dinosaurs started with a drawing. Yes. And so art is so important in everything, everything that we do. And, uh, you know, when you're sitting there in your garden and drawing a butterfly or drawing something maybe that's slower moving, like a snail, mm. <laughs> um, that uh, you're going through that same exercise and people need to uh, to cherish that opportunity to be able to do it, to be able to draw it and to be able to look at your work afterwards. I just saw lightning.
1: Oh, did you? <laughs> yes. I, uh Yeah. And I mean, just to piggyback on what you're saying about, about cherishing the, the feeling when you're working. For a long time, I've thought one of the things that I think is really beautiful about uh, sitting and drawing from life or, or when you get in the groove on a painting, I'm not a yoga practitioner, but that same sort of uh, focused and unfocused feeling you get when you exercise. I tend to do a lot of long-distance cycling. Um, there's a way to, to both be paying attention and paying no attention. when you're, I assume it's the same for, for people who, who do yoga and, or meditation and, and the same for people who, who exercise. Um, regularly like that. I think there's something about sketching that's very much like that where you're both paying attention intensely and also very unfocused and detached at the same time. And there's a there's an interesting thing I think happening in our minds when we do it where you are both tense and relaxed at the same time. And I think that's something that um I wish more people sketched as a without the intention of of worrying about is this a career or not. Just do it. Just sketch. Right. Just try it. So,
0: yeah. It doesn't take long for you to sketch and lose track of time. And when you've lost track of time, you've touched your soul. That's it, it, yeah. It's a special moment, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So there's something else that people could do if they wanted to kind of elevate their illustration game. And that is something that you have worked with someone else recently for the month of September, that's my little yes. segue into <laughs> into Sire at, September, Sire at September, which is something uh, that you started with, uh, Liz Butler.
1: Yes, Liz started this, and uh, Liz okay. is amazing. I have met I have met Liz before. She lives in Toronto, and frequently, uh, in pre COVID times at least, would draw specimens at the Royal Ontario Museum enough so like it was awesome. Like looking at the museum's Tumblr, you know, it'd be like. Every other post was like another sketch from Liz, and, and her drawings are just they have. You know when you're looking at one of Liz's, like they're fantastic, they and she has such a great uh, sense of color as well, a, re- a real eye for it. And uh, yes, this was this was Liz Liz's initiative, not mine. Um, but um, she asked if I was interested in helping uh, uh, promote it and and participating, and she very graciously put my name on the promo art she threw together. And she came up with thirty prompts for the month of September. They're fantastic prompts. I have uh, the the wheels have fallen off my train or wagon, and I have not produced much in the the last few days. Um, So I'm going to get back onto it. But uh, um, but Liz wanted to set a challenge for herself and thought it would be fun to see if other people would participate. And the people are producing such fantastic work. Like we're seeing so many great. Mm Great pieces on this on on Twitter and some on Instagram.
0: Yeah, I mentioned it in the uh, in the last podcast, and I think that. Um it's been great seeing all of this. I mean, we're halfway through September as we record this. Mm-hmm. I think that if you are doing illustration and you can do the last few days, that's great. If you don't listen to this till October, and shame on you for waiting for so long. <laughs> <laughs> but if you don't if you don't hear this until October or some other future point, uh, you can just reach back in time to these uh, using the, the hashtag Sire at September and just apply the prompts to that month. Mm-hmm. Because I think they're fantastic prompts. I guess that's my whole point with it is... She did a great job with those prompts. I was really impressed. Yeah. uh, Yeah. That was brilliant. Like, I've done Inktober the last three years. I'm Mm -hmm. probably going to do it this year. I keep saying that because I'm talking to myself out loud here. Work yourself Um, up to it. But (laughs) that's it. I just... Maybe I should. But I actually want to to be able to have the prompts more closely tied to scientific illustration than... um, you know, the the work that Jake Parker's doing Mm -hmm. in in children's books and that kind of thing. Right. So, um, that's what I'm looking at when I see those prompts, but the sci art prompts for September are brilliant. They're, they're just, some of them, it's like, I don't know how even how I'm going to do that. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, and then I see Liz post her stuff and it's like, Oh, you're too good. Yeah. She's
1: (laughs) she's so good. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah, what I've been thinking of is I had this one idea. I have this one idea I'd like to finish. And, uh, it actually hits maybe about five prompts all in one. So I'm kind of thinking I might, um, all right, what I want to do is I, you know, I did a few at the beginning. Um, I think I'm going to repost them all and just thread them all on Twitter. So they're all in one big chain, including ones that are from examples of past work. And, and you mentioned this on the last podcast too. And that's one of the nice things Liz has been encouraging people is if you can't hit them all, don't hit them all. And if you want to show past work from your portfolio that matches the prompt, just do it, just share that. And, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's not only a a great exercise to prompt you to draw. It's a, it's a nice uh, way to fill up everybody's Twitter feeds with um, with as many uh, gorgeous pieces as possible.
0: Right, because the followers you gained in the last month, six months, may not have ever seen that work. Exactly. Um yeah. and now you're giving that opportunity to 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 experience. Always
1: share your it. back portfolio. I repost Day hashtag Repost Day has been. Uh, Going on for about three days now, and uh, and um, oh. I keep seeing people, you know, grab the hashtag, and it's like, wasn't that three days ago? You know, it's still, you know, <laughs> who cares? Share it anyway. But I, I know that too, where you know, there's uh, an illustrator friend of mine, Eric Orchard. Uh, he's an award-winning uh, uh, comic book artist, and we talk about the nature of, of drawing and art and the business of it sometimes. And one of the things he uh, he said to me was, um, I have this one painting called Darwin Took Steps, and he said that one's your ambassador. It's that everybody has a, one picture that's their ambassador. That's if if you know anything of that person's work, you know that one. I think of that, you know, whenever every once in a while, I almost feel sick of that painting. But every once in a while, I'll pull it out, I'll put it back up on on Twitter or Instagram, and and uh, oh, that's you know, that's great. You know, like you get a bunch of nice compliments about it from people that, again, you know, two years ago they weren't following me or something, and they've never seen it.
0: Right. So this leads nicely into bit of a conversation about social media because you have a huge amount of experience you can hear that now you can hear it when um, if you have a chance to to hear glendon speak in in either uh, twitter spaces or clubhouse about social media so i have some questions just around that because as artists mm-hmm. it's there are huge opportunities with instagram and um twitter and other avenues as well art station if you want to be a bit more static with it but in the social media platforms we've got things facebook and also so on and so forth what are your feelings about what people are sharing i mean what are we doing wrong most of the time (laughs) should we be sharing works in progress are hashtags important like do you have a couple of comments for the artist who's kind of ramping themselves up and trying to get noticed and trying to either develop a voice or share their voice.
1: Yeah, I mean that you know it's such a big question, isn't it? I mean each platform is different and they do change over time. Despite the fact that it's a sharing square photos on Instagram is such a simple, elegant thing to do. Um and looking at Instagrams is amazing. I don't trust it because it's a Facebook product. (laughs) You know, I I do know years ago there was my my co-blogger uh Katie McKissick wrote a, a piece um about Facebook holding your audience for ransom and she wrote this for Scientific American and you know again this is going back like 8 years or something but she wrote about how you know you could you could build up a 100,000 followers on a Facebook page and then when they rolled out their um, their advertising schemes you know suddenly you're, the amount of people who would like your picture or comment on your picture would drop from you know you have 100,000 followers you might get 1,000 likes on a, on any given piece suddenly it was dropping down to 100 likes because the algorithm was favoring uh, paid content and Instagram is very much, you know, it's unfortunate, but it's going the same way. Facebook's in it to make money. And, you know, and this is how they're, they're choosing to monetize it. You know, there's a lot of discourse around what is the Twitter algorithm doing. Now, Twitter is a bit of a different story, though. And I wish more people knew this. But uh, with Twitter on either your phone or desktop, you can actually, you don't have to be, you know, in the thralls of the algorithm, you can switch it to recent and or latest i think they call it instead of uh, home and uh it's the little three stars at the top of your feed and uh that means you're just going to see the most recent tweets first it's not the algorithm anymore most people don't know that or do that and especially not the audience maybe artists will start to share that information with each other i'm sure plenty already know that mm-hmm. but uh so the algorithm may be eliminating your reach i guess for tips Hashtags are still important on Twitter. They're not as important as they were five years ago. They are important if you are running an event or at a conference or something where it's not a word in normal use. So hashtag September, sure, that's useful. Hashtag PaleoArt, it's not as commonly used a word, but honestly, you could just search PaleoArt and you'll find it. You don't have to have a hashtag for that. So Twitter search is actually... Really powerful. If you use it on your phone in the native Twitter app, one of the things you can do that's gorgeous is you can search for um, you know whatever term it is, and you can choose to only see tweets from people you follow. So this is something that Facebook tried to crack for years. Was like if there was a movie review, how do you see what your friends said about it? Right? With Twitter, you right. can actually do that um, to some extent. So. I think for, I think generally for nuggets of wisdom on this, I'm getting too far afield, Mike. Sorry. <laughs> I could talk about social media all day, all night. I know um, you could. <laughs> I think, I think the basics I would say are this. You know, people have said, I, th- I think this is attributed to Austin Cleon. Um, basically, you know, make cool, shit, put it online. People will pay you to make more cool. Shit. I think it's important to share your work that you're doing for yourself. It's important to, allow other people to share it with credit, in my opinion. A lot of artists don't agree with that. But I don't think you always need to have payment if somebody wants to borrow it to illustrate a blog or something that they're not necessarily making money on either. If you can get paid, do get paid. The illustrator Carl Buell, who is a natural history illustrator or paleo artist who does uh, prehistoric mammals, Uh, we became friends years ago through one of my first clients and he acted as a bit of a mentor to me, actually, with, with the internet, burgeoning as it is. Um, he's retired mostly these days. But he, uh, he said to me, like, anytime somebody's paying you to do brand new work, they have to pay you. But if they're just borrowing something out of your back portfolio, let them borrow it. Maybe it'll lead to new opportunities. And he had a case where he had a mammoth painting that he had just sitting around for ages. Um, and then somebody asked if they could use it in a, um, a TV special. He said, sure. They didn't have much money. But then because of that, it ended up getting picked up for licensed for two different books. So I think don't be afraid to share. Don't be afraid to share your sketches. People love to see the curtain pulled back. But be protective of your copyright. Just because you're sharing doesn't mean that every use of your work is okay. And people need to ask you.
0: Should you be doing things? Because I was listening to another talk, part of LBX. um, They were there talking about protecting your work. The idea of, you know downsizing it, making sure it's 72 dpi instead of 300 dpi when you share it. I know it goes through some of these social media platforms, and they downsize mm-hmm. it anyways for you and make it look ugly. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, um, and, and, you know, the idea of, of putting, you know, a watermark on it or shooting it at an oblique angle, um, like uh, on your desk instead of straight on. Yeah. Uh, is that... S-
1: um- I think the first thing to recognize is that no matter what protections you try to use, somebody's going to find a way around it. I mean, the oblique angle thing, you can fix that up in Photoshop in seconds. Um, right. And certainly some scientific illustrators that I know and respect immensely will put very large watermarks across the center of their work because they do actually get to license these things for things like textbooks in different markets and things. I'm thinking of somebody like Emily Damstra, who I've learned so much from. She's fantastic. And I think you know, some of it is do what you're comfortable with. But the other thing that happens with your work online is once you start building community, this is the number one way to protect your work is have a community of people that you talk to, not just artists, but also fans, also clients or potential clients. I once had an anthropologist in Minnesota, send me a message and say, this, this website's using your artwork. Do they have permission? Was that okay? And I was like, Oh, that's very nice of you. Uh, yeah, actually, that, that's cool. <laughs> you know, they checked with me first. But you know, it was just getting this message out of the blue saying, hey, I know whose that is. You know, so once you've got a bit of an audience and some fans, it's not easy to build those things up. But the way to build those up is be genuine when you're commenting on other people's work. Be reciprocal. Don't always be crying for attention. But, uh, but genuinely mean it. If you like some other people's work, tell them that. They love it. They'll probably follow you back. And once you start building up that sense of community, to me, that seems to be the strongest way to protect your work, because technological fixes are always going to be easy to get around. Somebody's going to figure out a
0: way. Right? Do you think that people should be obsessing? Like, I, I think part of the social media thing, and the reason it always comes up, especially with uh, artists who are starting out or trying to build, it's frustrating, you know, because you you have people that may have fifty thousand. Three hundred thousand, a million yeah. followers, and they're saying this is what I profess to be—the way you should do yeah. this—and everyone's like, "Yeah, but you're already there." And <laughs> you know, yeah. you, you, it's twenty twenty hindsight, and that's a time that, that we're not at right now. So, I, I just alleviating this stress around oh, I've only got you know a hundred followers or a thousand followers, or I'm not verified, which yeah, is a yeah. thing that is is problematic for others. Like, can you? share some thoughts around how we get past that and we stay healthy and, and keep sure.
1: Yeah. I think, uh, first of all, verification isn't everything. My account is verified largely in due due to writing for scientific American for a long time. I I assume that's the reason, (laughs) you know, um, it was at a time when you could ask. So I asked and and got it. Um, but they don't sit there and tell you why you got it. The tools aren't, you don't get a lot of extra. Uh, It's not, you know, you have the blue check mark as a status symbol, but it's not, you get one extra tab where you can look at only verified uh, tweets from your feed, like whatever. Um, It's not, not super easy. So first of all, don't get hung up on being verified on, on that or on Instagram or wherever. But I think, you know, for people who go follower accounts don't matter. Well, that's not entirely true, right? Um, You need to have an audience to, to pay attention to your stuff. I will say it in my opinion, as a, as a guy who's also a marketing manager, never, ever buy bots to falsely inflate your follower count. People know when you do it; it's obvious, and it's really hard to get rid of them. Uh, so I, I've resisted it at a number of jobs I've even had. You know, at a startup where the CEO is like, "Just buy some; let's get our numbers up." It's like, no, <laughs> you know, like I'm not doing it. I don't <laughs> want to share my artwork, or in this case, it was at a job. I don't want to share the work we were doing with with bots. I want to share it with real people who are interested. So if you have a hundred people and and uh, 20 of them regularly comment on your stuff, and more of them probably like it. You know That's great. Like, Be happy, You know, and, and it'll keep building. I think when you're starting out, often it's useful to have a regular cadence. For years, when I started my blog, I would do... I just called Art Mondays, and I would put up something every Monday. Sketch, finished painting, old work. I might make some comments about it, sometimes I just put it up there. And uh, I did that for maybe the first two or three years I was blogging. And after I stopped regularly posting then... I still had a traffic spike every Monday for the next couple of years. Wow. Um, yeah, just from, from people checking. And I, I think if you're using Twitter that way, and I'm guilty of not doing this myself at the moment, but having, I don't know, you know whatever's convenient for you, like you can try to mm-hmm. target you know, peak times uh, in North America um, you know, to, to post your work ideally. But whatever time works for you cause to take the stress out of it, and Twitter does have a scheduler on desktop, post the work. And uh, try to do it somewhat regularly. Get something up all the time. It's always tough when you go to an artist's feed and you're not sure if you want to follow them. And you look at that little media blurb off to the to the right hand side, and there's six images there, and all of them are memes, and none of them are the artwork. Mm-hmm. You know, I,
0: yeah, 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 I know like, what you mean.
1: Do I only want to? F- okay, they're posting a lot of SpongeBob memes. Do I want to? Is this an artist I want to follow or not? You know, like not everybody's attention is going to go further down the rabbit hole and go to your linked uh, portfolio or your art station. So. Right. So I, I think that's something to try to when you're starting out. Um, it, it can help to be a bit more focused. Um, and I say that as somebody who right now tweets in a very, very unfocused manner about local politics, movies, and video games I like, and occasionally talks about my own artwork. So
0: <laughs> you know, and I have to say, I saw your your video game comments and I was like I didn't know he's even cooler now
1: oh no am I I don't know if I'm cooler
0: (laughs) so I just extend that a bit further to some recent changes and I I say recent with uh, Twitter Spaces and Clubhouse Mm -hmm. what do you think the impact of these these audio meetups have had, I mean, Twitter, it's, Twitter Spaces is an audio opportunity within the Twitter platform. Clubhouse is only audio. Mm-hmm. Is this something artists should be part of? I
1: do think they should give it a try. I think anytime you can do some community building, it's a, it's a positive. And there's more to art than just the visuals. So it is possible to get together. As you say, you know, Clubhouse, it's audio only. Uh, the only way you can share any of your work is by updating your profile picture. Telling everybody to refresh and look at it, um, and it's so small. I mean, it's you know, it's something. It's something. <laughs> it's a nice community-generated uh, workaround. But I think um, anytime you can have artists get together and talk about their, you know, whether it's talking about their craft, whether it's talking about, hey, uh, you know, I'm really unhappy with this brand of pencil crayon. Like, anybody have any suggestions? You know, <laughs> and uh, um, there's so much you can actually speak about without having to necessarily look at the visuals. And I think. That said, I tend to lean, you know, if you're interested in audio apps, I tend to lean more toward Twitter spaces because it has, you know, if you haven't used it, when you're in the chat, you can see all of the profile pictures of everybody down below um, that are listening and the speakers are on top of them. But you can also pin tweets at the top and you can pin a huge number of them. I mean, I think in one of the weeks you were you were in the chat with us. I think we probably pinned over 40. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many, it keeps going past that, but at any rate, if you're having a chat and, and you wanted to share something, you can pin a tweet that has an image and then people can just tap on it and look at the image and discuss the image. I was searching for Twitter spaces that were about art one day and just kind of idly scrolling through and uh, found one that said it was an art space for, on, on spaces and I jumped in and, and it was a group of teenagers that First of all, we're like, oh no, blue check marks here. Who is this guy? You know, like, and uh, <laughs> found us, you know, or something like that. They were they were great. They were so nice. They were talking about anime, and they the pinned tweet was a link to uh, a whiteboard app, and they were all uh, drawing on the same link on the whiteboard app on a giant whiteboard. Like it was it was literally like almost having like a group of students in a classroom all drawing on the whiteboard at the same time, but they were doing it virtually. Mm-hmm um while they sat and chatted about animes they liked and uh after they you know freaked out about me being in the room i, I you know yeah I, uh, I chatted with them a little bit and and tried to draw on the whiteboard with my finger on my phone i think they must have been i they're either very good at drawing on, <laughs> on their phones with their fingers or they, they were <laughs> accessing the link differently we were
0: i was in a room with you and somebody from twitter showed up
1: that's right yeah, from thought that was like, yeah. Uh,
0: yeah yeah i thought that was great
1: yeah the the Twitter spaces team is really behaving differently than I've ever seen Twitter behave in the past, and they they um in the past you know they've done things like like transform the stars to hearts without asking anybody, and then just sort of tough luck we made the change you know mm-hmm. but the Twitter spaces team, I commented to one of the developers that they really seem to be acting more like video game community managers who you know go out on Twitter and reddit and discord and find out what the community likes and doesn't like and takes that back to the team and sometimes they implement it, they introduce a character that everybody asked for or something. And I made that comment to one of the developers and she said, yeah, that's, that's how exactly we're trying to approach this, is uh, we really want to be transparent and get as much community feedback as possible. before it, Twitter Spaces is still technically, I think, considered to be in a beta and mm-hmm. uh, so they're, they're trying to get a lot of things right before they just uh, roll it out everywhere.
0: So for the person listening, if you wanted to kind of dip your toe into this without speaking, you could always tune in to what Glendon co-hosts every Wednesday. Yes,
1: with Julia Krolik. Yeah.
0: Mostly every Wednesday. And so you alternate between Twitter Spaces and Clubhouse.
1: That's right. Tomorrow will be on, uh, oh, yeah, I guess tomorrow is irrelevant because it's being recorded. Um <laughs> As of uh, as of Wednesday the fifteenth, uh, we will be on Twitter Spaces, and then we'll alternate to Clubhouse the following week.
0: So when this, yeah, so when this podcast comes out, if you listen to it as soon as it comes out, which you should, <laughs> it'll be that Wednesday on Clubhouse, and then alternate back to, to Twitter. But if you follow uh, Glendon, you post where you're going to do it either way. But these are really great because there's uh, you call them Siret Wednesdays. It's nine o'clock Eastern,
1: nine o'clock Eastern, six p.m. Pacific. Yeah, with uh, Julia Krolik and I, uh, and we, we hop back and forth between the two platforms. We've discussed if we want to settle down on one or not a little bit. Um, we're not ready to do that yet.
0: But That's good. Yeah, I th- I've been on a few in both platforms, and I think it's great just to be talking about science and art. Sometimes it gets really heavy into the science. Yes. Um, sometimes it gets into the art. But in both Frameworks or platforms. There's an opportunity for you just to be a fly on the wall. There's no pressure to come up to the stage and speak. So if you're listening to this and you want to just see what it's like, just um, follow along on Twitter or Clubhouse, and uh, it's 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 engaging. It's I've learned so much. Now I'm contributing a little bit in in speaking on stage, but I've you're contributing lots. It's great. <laughs> but, yeah, but I've learned so much from from you and Julie and all the other artists that show up for these things that um, I feel so enthusiastic about the work that I've been doing. I feel like I found my people because when right. when you're doing the kind of work I've been doing and you're amongst artists that are doing oil paintings and fine art you feel a bit lost sometimes. And so mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's been wonderful. Yeah. And
1: I, I think that's a, that's great to hear. I mean, that's excellent to hear. It's, it's, I mean, that's really what it is. It's, um, you know, years ago there was even a discussion. I was using the hashtag uh, science art all the time and other people were using art sci and some people were using sci art. And there was literally this one evening on Twitter where a lot of people in the science and art community got into a conversation about it. And, this is people like uh, Calliope Manios. Um, she was the, the first artist to draw Tiktaalik, and uh, one of my, my co-bloggers and good friends, and uh, Michelle Banks, who goes by Artologica. And there was, a, there was a whole bunch of people engaged in the discussion. And we were sort of like, you know, there needs to just be one thing. One thing we say as a large umbrella term for all of this, um, whether it's fine art engaged in science, whether it's a science comic strip, whether it's hardcore scientific illustration. And, uh, and that was where we all sort of decided to settle on SciArt as a, a large umbrella term for everything. So, so when Julie and I host these, and, and I mean, Julia comes at it, I mean, her, her whole history is fascinating. And she comes at it from a data visualization perspective and, and uh, somebody who's perpetually curious about everything and has a lot of energy to, to bring to it. I think we try to make sure everybody's welcome. And one of my favorite parts of the SciArt chats is the non sequiturs. We're all sitting there and we're all gushing about how much, uh, I don't know, there's one week we we're all hating on bumblebees, you know, um, <laughs> for for. <laughs> yeah, sucking, I was there yeah, for that. <laughs> sucking up all the attention in the room, you know, bumblebees um, or, or honeybees, you know, and then you can be in a conversation like that where everybody's just fixated on this one thing. And then you go, oh, hey, you know, we should say hi to so-and-so who's got the mic now and just stepped into the room, say hi, and they'll say, I don't want to derail the conversation, but... Um, did anybody here see that comet last night, you know or whatever? and you know suddenly we're off on that. We <laughs> went from bumblebees to uh, you know painting nighttime scenes or something. Yeah. Um, so we've had uh, conversations where we've gone really deep into mental health for artists, and people can get really raw and share their experiences to do with uh, uh, poverty or mental health issues or how it affects your mental health if uh, if your artwork's not as successful as you'd like it to be, and things like that so. They, you know the conversations can can range widely depending on who shows up, so <laughs> interesting
0: yeah, it is um it's been fun like it, it's always a yes. surprise and uh, always engaging so I just wanted to t- just to end the social bit just talking about your blog because I find that's interesting. I've spoken to so many artists like you know i i I spoke to Lisa Congden who got her real big push um with her fans through oh, Flickr. Yeah. And, you know, we have Instagram, we have Twitter, we have everything else at this point. Um, And we've had blogs Mm -hmm. through all of that. It feels like blogs aren't going away. It feels like almost blogs are going to be that thread that we own as individuals. What's your feeling on artists doing a blog? Do you think it's important? Is it as important as being on Twitter and and Instagram? Or at least, you know, and it doesn't
1: have to be regular. I I do think so. Um, I mean, I think... I think every social media platform tends to have a life cycle. I think they all tend to, you know, come and go. The better blogging platforms also make the files able to export and be imported by other platforms. There's some that don't. So if you're picking one, try to find one that will at least play nicely with others. Personally, I started on Blogger and then I switched to Squarespace um, as a birthday present to myself back when I turned 40. And Squarespace, I have to say, is phenomenal if you're not somebody who wants to deal with a lot of coding and you just kind of want to dive into it. They have some gorgeous templates and you can just get started. Um, I do not get paid to say this. But, uh, (laughs) um, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. It actually makes me really happy to hear you say that blogs don't seem to be going away, Mike, because I I hear the, the opposite from a lot of people and I usually disagree. I mean... Most of my job, my day job, is is uh, getting paid to blog professionally, but we just call it the news page or articles now. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's matured enough as a you know as a as a form that we don't necessarily um, even call it blogging anymore. So I think it's I think it can be important because it's a place for you to park your thoughts, even if nobody else is reading them. It becomes um, I mean, there's a reason why LiveJournal was such a great name. Uh, for a platform back then, because it was it was out live for people to look at, mm-hmm. and it was sort of a journal of what you were doing. So I think blogging can be really nice. It's something that's your own as well. Whereas when you throw things out to the winds on on Instagram or Twitter or TikTok or any of the other platforms, you're more part of the platform and the community than you're out in the public square. You're not setting up your home, you know. And I think that's the thing about a, a nice blog site is it's this is this is your space. This is your you set this up how you want it to look. Um, yeah, it, it feels healthy to me.
0: <laughs> it does. I, I think it forces a bit of introspection. And um, uh, sometimes we need that realignment. Absolutely. what's important to us. And I think a blog helps with that. Um, how's your TikTok
1: game? Are you on TikTok? I am on TikTok. It's low. My TikTok game is low. <laughs> I, uh, I'm not a big... You know what it is? I mean, honestly, um, the whole time that Facebook told everybody that uh, the pivot to video was a big deal, and newsrooms were laying off staff, like left, left, right, and center, and hiring videographers. And then, you know, now we know that they falsely inflated the stats on that drastically. Um, that came out a couple of years ago. That it, it it was more of a a scheme <laughs> than it was a, a reality. Um, I'm not a giant video person. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm on Twitter, if there's a video that doesn't have captions overlaid, I often just don't bother to watch it. So TikTok for me is not something I'm, I'm massively interested in. I have a TikTok where I've I've taken a couple of my Procreate uh, processes and, and thrown them on there with played with the special effects. As any good social media manager should, I'm, I'm dipping my toe into that water because <laughs> right. one of these days, uh, the higher-ups are going to decide that we need to be on there. Um, so, yeah, I... TikTok's great, you know, I mean, my my son loves it. it. It's it's certainly a great way to spread memes, it's a great way to get some attention. My general advice that I've often given for years now to to artists is, there's so many social media platforms, so just pick two. Pick two, devote your time on those, don't worry about, you know, don't let fear of missing out, you know, destroy you, <laughs> you know, like you don't have to be, you know, I see some scientific illustrators who are seriously trying to get work um, are very active on LinkedIn and, uh, so again, pick two. I usually would say pick two, make sure one of them is Twitter. <laughs> you know? But uh, just because to me it feels like it's, it's that space, yep. but I'm also a straight white male. So um, I don't tend to get, uh, you know, there can be a lot of abuse uh, for other people on Twitter. So that's something to be mindful of before you step mm-hmm. into that space as well. Is, is Do you have the bandwidth to, to deal with that? Do you want to try that? So I would say with whatever platforms you pick, skip Facebook it's pay to play these days. It's just not worth it. We don't even use it for work anymore. And whether it's Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, TikTok, maybe you're really active on Reddit, mm-hmm. pick two and try to post there, right. With some regularity and, and, uh, see where it takes you, see what communities form, see what friendships you make, you know, and these aren't friendships in, in the classical sense of the word all the time. Sometimes they're more like online allies. Um, as I say, you know, th- these are the people who will recognize when your work gets ripped off. So.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Um, So in this day and age, I mean, we're doing so much on iPads and Procreate, and I just love it. Yeah, it is so cool being able to draw and have it look good and being able to see the time lapse and all that. The challenge we've always had is is what do you do when you're done? Do you print it? You know, what can you do to distribute this? And NFTs have now hit these non-fungible tokens. I'm gonna be devoting a a future podcast to this. But I'm wondering from a science a sci-art perspective, what do you think about NFTs in that space?
1: Well, I'm not a giant fan, I can say, first of all. I think the, you know, i tried to do a lot of reading on them, um, pros and cons. I think a lot of my time writing at Scientific American years ago, my largest focus was on copyright, sharing, and artists receiving uh, credit, even as a form of respect, even if they weren't getting paid. And... I think that, you know, there's two issues here. There's the technology of NFTs and whether or not that holds promise for something really cool in the future. At the moment, I don't personally, I don't find it very cool. I find it sort of unnecessary. You know, it, it feels a bit like a, a receipt to a link that might be attached to some artwork if the link hasn't rotted. And I, I know a lot of people would be upset if I say that, or, or you know, flat out want to tell me I'm wrong. But, but um, at the same time, uh, <laughs> that's okay. That's the technology side, and maybe it will lead to something cooler in the future. Neil Dash has written a little bit about how he was uh, one of the people at the forefront of when a lot of people were first talking about these things years ago, and how for him and his partner, I think it was somebody named O'Hara, I believe, um, were trying to solve the problem of crediting artists online way that can't be lost and he felt like they got it 90 percent of the way but could never quite take it over the threshold you know again if if somebody who doesn't own the art uh mints an nft already you're starting with a a bad root you know it's rotten at the core um Mm -hmm. uh, it's going to get sold and, and bought and sold and all of that will be recorded beautifully but but uh the initial um minting is is corrupted and so he sort of you know felt like the NFTs are, are at a, a place where they, it was never solved yet we ran, you know, people ran with it anyway, <laughs> you know? Um, so for me, as somebody who cares deeply about artists receiving credit for what they deserve, the bigger issue for me is not on what the science and technology may prove to be useful for in the future. My bigger concern is the culture around them now. And while I do understand there are a lot of artists who feel very supported when they they dip their toes into those waters. For me, I see a lot of people also being ripped off. Uh, the technology has made it vastly easier for, you know, there was a Twitter account for a while going around last spring called Tokenized Tweets, where all anybody had to do was, was comment that at and handle into uh, a reply underneath a tweet with artwork in it, and it would automatically, I think, start minting uh, the artwork into a, a tokenized tweet. You know, Twitter, you know, thankfully deleted the account but um but people had to block it like artists online were freaking out and having to block it so i think right away there was a cultural problem where the nft community uh, earned a lot of very ill will with illustrators worldwide because illustrators everywhere felt like all of a sudden it was like great since time immemorial people have been ripping off my stuff and selling it as t-shirts on Redbubble or wherever now I have to play whack-a-mole with mm-hmm. these guys, you know, <laughs> and uh, now I've got to keep track of all this. Right. DeviantArt has come out with something sort of beautiful um, and, and wonderful for the community, I think, where they have DeviantArt for a long time. I wasn't aware of this. I used to use DeviantArt back in the day, kind of eventually sort of fell off the platform. But mm-hmm. um, they apparently will uh, detect if anybody uploads your work to another DeviantArt account and give you an alert. And that alert is free for all users for the first three months. If you're a paid user, it's in perpetuity. So they basically announced a couple of weeks ago that DeviantArt is now going to take that algorithm that scans for duplicated artwork appearing, and they've been doing tests on it, apparently getting over 80%, I think 86% or something like that, accurate uh, scans of the most popular NFT galleries and are scanning for... Plagiarized art that's being uploaded, and they will alert you. Wow! Um, if your stuff has been uploaded to OpenSea or, or whichever foundation or whichever other platform, so that's kind of a cool technological fix. But it's it's giving us a bigger hammer to play whack-a-mole with. It's not uh, it's not solving the problem, right?
0: Yeah. Now I got to put all my art in deviantart exactly in and pay the mean, subscriptions to, to ensure they can find it.
1: Yeah. You know, R.J. Palmer, uh, the illustrator, um, he goes by Arvalis on uh, Twitter. You know, he said that. You know, even if you don't want to engage with DeviantArt as a platform, you don't want to comment, you don't want to like things. Uh, He's like, it's worth five bucks a month to upload all your artwork there and and let them tell you if anybody rips your stuff off. Um, What a service. What a tremendous idea. So,
0: Yeah. If you don't have a lot of followers, you don't have the community watching for your
1: art. That's true. DeviantArt can do it for you. you Yeah, DeviantArt can do it for you. So
0: So, uh, I will have a future episode about NFTs and this opportunity to to generate revenue for digital works and uh, be able to do percentages mm-hmm. in future as well. But um, I just want to get your take on it from illustration. So that's really helpful.
1: Yeah, I think, I think from an illustration side, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's something I have a, a lot of dubious feelings about rather than, um, again, in how it's played out in actuality versus, you know, I'm not saying it's not going to transform into something cool in the future. I, I think there, there's uh, potential there. Uh, where it stands right now, I'm kind of, gross down by it, but that's, that's my personal gut feel.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so what is the best advice you think you've ever received?
1: Uh, the best advice I've ever received, uh, probably, uh, probably as I say from Carl Buell um, that, you know, it's okay to share stuff out of your, your back portfolio, if the person can't pay, um, but always get money, you know, and, and take a deposit upfront if you're being hired to do new work. Um, I think that's probably the number one piece of advice. So much so that, I mean, a lot of artists disagree that everything in your back portfolio you should monetize as well. Um, The Guild of Natural Science Illustrators actually contacted me one year before the pandemic to virtually log into one of their talks because I was the only person the organizers could think of who would argue for allowing uh, York to be free sometimes. (laughs) So um, so I, I guess I was taking a contrary stance, but but um, but I think it was good advice from him. And I, I think um, when people think about all the issues surrounding copyright and theft and sharing, because those are all tied up together online, I think reading uh, Cory Doctorow is really useful. Um, and the difference between being able to share something online and, and uh, it being stolen online. And a lot of that has to come down to credit. Um, if somebody else you know, io9 years ago decided to share some of my artwork and, you know, it was part of their, um, uh, what do they call it? The fine art series or something like that. And I didn't know they were going to do it. You know, (laughs) it was all stuff I had on my portfolio online, but I mean, you know, they linked it all back. They're like, find him here, find him there. And, uh, you know, here's his Twitter handle and, and, uh, I, would I have liked to be asked first? Well, kind of, but you know, it, it, uh, it, it was a little strange, at the same time, they were very clearly, in my mind, uh, sharing in good faith as opposed to stealing anything. So I, I sort of think Carl's uh, advice was was just spot on.
0: Okay, that's awesome. So I have a, a question from left field here. Yes. If you had a chance to have lunch with a fictional person... Fictional person. Who would that be? Fictional person. Lunch. Oh. Whose brain would you want to pick? Whose brain? <laughs> or just whose presence would you like to enjoy? And, and you know... I, because you're an, a science illustrator, it doesn't necessarily need to be fictional. Okay. I'll, I'll say that. Well, that, that throws other wrinkles
1: that th- into it. Because, I mean, if we were going to say fictional, I don't know why, but the, the first person who popped into my head was actually um, Dracula from Bram Stoker's novel. Um, hmm. Why is that? Uh, over the years, I've gotten more and more fascinated by history. And, I mean, he's a fictional character, but if I could have lunch, assuming the windows are, are drawn um (laughs) for his comfort and he's been fed yes and he's been fed (laughs) he's enjoying whatever he's enjoying and i'm enjoying whatever i'm enjoying um i think i think what i would like about it is i feel like as much as the conversation would feel dangerous it would also feel very challenging so i think that you know he would have a deep knowledge of history that would be interesting to hear from and i think it would also Mm -hmm. i don't think he would uh I don't feel like I could let my guard down in a conversation with Dracula. And I think that would actually be really fascinating to walk it out of after.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good point. Like a, to have lived history and have a conversation with somebody who's lived history. Yes. is Very different than somebody who studied.
1: History. But also somebody who's uh, comes from a, a fundamentally different viewpoint and is sort of predatory. I don't enjoy those conversations with people normally. Right. But I think again, I think there would be something interesting about walking away from it afterwards. Like, yes, did it. <laughs> 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 <He> did <me. laughs>
0: and look, no holes. So, yeah. So, yeah. That's I don't cool. know. That just I love that answer. <laughs> <laughs> I love that one. Okay. So every podcast, I always ask my guests for a little bit of homework for the listener, something that they can take. It could be a technical exercise, it could be a social media exercise. What would you recommend as a matter of homework for the listener to try?
1: I think the thing I would recommend, and I I hope this isn't too art fundamentals, but I think it's to really try to see what's actually in front of you. We are all bombarded with uh, more movies and images and especially things like cartoons and graphics of what the world should look like. That I think there's a lot of value in looking at what is actually there. I think if you slow down and look at the world when you're drawing or painting, even right now, I mean I have this this dark blue water bottle underneath some patio lights here. And with it picking up the reflections of the dark brown table, the dark blue is actually looking, if I really look at it, it's actually looking a bit more purpley black than blue. Slow down and really, really observe. We all have expectations for what are there. So try to see what is actually there. And uh, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain is a book that, you know, we were taught in grade nine art class. I thought all of those exercises of drawing pictures upside down without looking at what you were, you couldn't look at your own page. Mm -hmm. And we'd hand in scribbles at the end of class. I thought the whole thing was such bull****. (laughs) And then the summer after grade nine, I tried it when I was trying to draw some stuff seriously. I tried following all the contours millimeter by millimeter with my eye and getting it accurately on the page. And I was like, this actually works. So I think that's it. I, I think all I'm saying is uh, there's a lot of words to say, I think slow down and really observe what you're actually looking at, not what you expect you're looking at.
0: That's a really good exercise. I'm, uh, I, I love speaking to artists. And I've really enjoyed this conversation because it's hit deep with me because it's tied to the work that I've been doing.
1: I love seeing your work, by the way, all the time. Like it's, I don't know, you know, I, oh, it's just, anyway, every week you've got something else that's <laughs> magically sprung into existence.
0: Right. And but, but earlier when I was saying, you know, you, you get away from art and uh, you don't draw for a few days. That's me right now. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. after, but now I'm really stoked about doing a water bear Cause right. I've got some images I got from the scope and it's like, right. I'm going to draw one in pencil, maybe colored pencil and I'll just arbitrarily choose what color they are. But yeah, now I'm pretty stoked. So I, uh, I, I this has been so, this has been so much fun, but before I let you go, uh, where can people find you online?
1: Uh, you can find me at glendonmello.com. My last name is spelled like the word. Um, you can find me at flying trilobite on Twitter, Instagram, probably many other places, but those would be the primary ones. <laughs> Uh, usually either uh, as uh, either Glendon Mellow or Flying Trilobite. Yeah, that, that's, that's most of it.
0: That's awesome. I'll include links to all of those in the show notes. And uh, you can find both of us um, probably at the next few SciArt art uh, talks. So um, yeah, follow follow Glendon on on, on Twitter, and he will uh, be tweeting out when he's speaking and and where it is, whether it's Clubhouse or, or Twitter Spaces. And maybe if if you want to come in and join and chat with us, and just say you heard about it on the podcast,
1: I'd love to. Yeah, I'd love to hear that. That'd be great.
0: That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Glendon. It's been wonderful getting to know you as a a voice in space it's been better to see your face and it's been wonderful talking about trilobites and um art and and science and illustration and uh i've just i'm i'm i love these talks because i'm gonna leave and i'm, I'm good for the next few days now to, to go off and create and i'm hopeful the listener will be the same so thank you so much for your time
1: thank you mike this has been tremendous this is really interesting yeah, you definitely uh asked me some questions i, I wasn't uh thinking about right away and hope i didn't um and ah too much for you not at (laughs) all so
0: take care of yourself and and have a good week you too mike thanks thank you show notes including links to everything glendon and i spoke about can be found at drawinginspirationfm slash 62 if you enjoy the show please subscribe share and review wherever you listen to podcasts this will help surface the podcast for others to enjoy thank you so much for joining me this week be kind to yourself and each other and keep drawing the music for this podcast is Acid Jazz provided by Kevin McLeod.